So our text this morning is Hebrews chapter 12, verses 3 to 13. Let's pay attention to God's word. Consider him, that is Jesus, who endured from sinners such hostility against himself, so that you may not grow weary or faint-hearted in your struggle against sin. You have not yet resisted to the point of shedding your blood. And have you forgotten the exhortation that addresses you as sons? My son, do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord, nor be weary when reproved by him. For the Lord disciplines the one he loves and chastises every son whom he receives. It is for discipline that you have to endure. God is treating you as sons. For what son is there whom his father does not discipline? If you are left without discipline in which all have participated, then you are illegitimate children and not sons. Besides this, we have had earthly fathers who disciplined us and we respected them. Shall we not much more be subject to the father of spirits and live? For they disciplined us for a short time as it seemed best to them. But he disciplines us for our good that we may share in his, share his holiness. For the moment, all discipline seems painful rather than pleasant. But later it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness to those who've been trained by it. Therefore, lift up, lift your drooping hands and strengthen your weak knees and make straight paths for your feet so that what is lame may not be put out of joint, but rather be healed. Let's pray. God, we pray that you would give us great insight into your word, that we may be diligent sons and daughters of you, our heavenly father. And we ask this for Jesus, the one who endured from sinners, hostility against himself. Amen. Swear, and I will set thee at liberty. Reproach Christ. That's what the Roman proconsul said to Polycarp of Smyrna in AD 155. The reply, 80 and six years have I served him, and he never did me any injury How then can I blaspheme my king and my savior? Polycarp considered Jesus. He considered him who endured such opposition from sinful men. He was threatened with wild beasts. He was threatened with fire, but he stood firm. In the martyrdom of Polycarp, the account of this uh, martyrdom Uh, records that Polycarp was so full of confidence and joy that it was rather the Roman proconsul than Polycarp himself who was troubled, who was astonished. He was bound on, his, his hands were bound and he was put on a pyre of wood. And he prayed, O Lord God Almighty, the Father of thy beloved and blessed Son, Jesus Christ, And then he said, I give thee thanks that thou hast counted me worthy of this day and this hour, uh, reminding us, of course, of the apostles' own response in the book of Acts to trials. Thank you, God, that I have been counted worthy to suffer for your name. And then he says, as he's like a ram on a pile of wood, he prays, may I be accepted this day before thee as a fat and acceptable sacrifice, according as thou, the ever truthful God, hast foreordained. And then 
he was burned. Consider, remember, and be strong. Consider, remember, and be strong. That's the title of the message this morning. First, I want you to consider your dedicated Savior in verses 3 to 4. Second, I want you to remember, remember who you are, your disciplined sons, verses 5 to 11. And then third, with verses 12 and 13, I want you to be strong with deliberate strength. So dedicated Savior, disciplined sons, and deliberate strength. First, a dedicated Savior in verses 3 to 4. Consider Jesus, your dedicated Savior. He was perfect, but he faced opposition from sinners. Imagine being mistreated when you know it is impossible that it's your fault. You rub me the wrong way because you're a sinner. But guess what? I rub you the wrong way because I'm a sinner. But in 1 Peter 2.22, the apostle Peter, who lived life with Jesus, said he never sinned. Jesus never sinned. So Jesus endured hostility from sinners, and he always knew it was not his fault. Consider Jesus. We suffer, but sometimes we cause other people to suffer. Jesus did no wrong. 1 Peter 2.23 says, what did Jesus do? He commended himself to the one who judges justly. Jesus, for the joy set before him, endured the cross and scorned the shame because he had us in mind. Consider your dedicated Savior who is willing to go the extra mile, even to go to the cross for us. So don't be weary. Don't be faint-hearted, verse 3. Now, let's be clear. Weary, being weary is not the same thing as being tired. Being faint-hearted is not the same thing as being exhausted. Weariness and faint-heartedness have an element of despair or hopelessness, which is unbecoming of a Christian. If you are nurturing the plants of weariness and faint-heartedness in the garden of your soul, then you need to stop. You need to look to Jesus. Jesus is a good leader. And you've got to ask yourself whether or not, verse 4, you follow him in your struggle against sin the way he struggled against your sin. Have you yet resisted the point of the shedding of your blood? We ought to be grateful. We ought to recognize that Jesus leads from the front. In 1945, the Supreme Allied Commander, Dwight D. Eisenhower, sent a message to General George S. Patton, warning him not to try to take Trier because it would take at least four divisions to conquer that city. Patton's reply is just marvelous. Have taken Trier with two divisions. Do you want me to give it back? How did Patton, for all his many faults, how did Patton encourage the men of the Third Army to fight that way? 
always do everything you ask of those you command. That was one of Patton's leadership principles. Always do everything you ask of those you command. There is a great deal of talk about loyalty from the bottom to the top. Patton writes in his posthumously published War As I Knew It. Loyalty from the top down is even more necessary and much less prevalent. Do you see what he's saying? Generals will always say, oh, the soldiers really need to be loyal. They really need to be faithful. And Patton, who was himself a general, said, how about the generals showing their dedication to their troops? Patton lived this way almost 30 years before Patton, a young officer, was, a, uh, was in the first U.S.-led offensive in World War I, and he led from the front. He was at the front of his tanks in World War I. Jesus does not ask us to go where he has not been already, and Jesus has shown his loyalty to you. Now you show your loyalty to him. Trust in Jesus. The Christian life is not about glory now. If someone tells you the Christian life is about your best life now, then the person is lying and Christianity is pretty disappointing. It's suffering now and glory later. We will feast in the house of Zion. We, he will wipe away every tear. We, we have a, a glorious inheritance that awaits us because of him. Consider your dedicated savior. That's our first point. The second is remember. Remember who you are, your disciplined sons. Remember who you are. Now, the author quotes Proverbs chapter three, which is a marvelous text of a father's loving instruction to trust in the Lord. Verse five, my son, don't regard lightly the discipline of the Lord, nor be weary when reproved by him. For the Lord disciplines the one he loves and chastises every son whom he receives. Now, one of, so the author of Hebrews then is being a father to us, just as the, the, the Proverbs chapter three, it's a father to a son. He's, he's playing the role of father to us. And he's coming alongside us and he's saying, your hardships are evidence that God loves you. Your troubles are evidence that he is disciplining you. Now, I am uh, I'm a father of four, so and I'm not a grandparent. And uh, but I've been told that there is irrepressible delight and being a grandparent. And I think part of it is you get pleasure without responsibility. <laughs> the grandfather's job is to give candies and toys. It's the father's job to teach self-control, right? There is something to be said for uh, blessing your grandchildren. But part of that, the blessing to you is you don't have to worry about character formation. That's the parent's responsibility. I wouldn't want to interfere 
with how they raise their children. Have more pie, right? So that's just, that, that's part of the joy of being a grandparent. We don't discipline other people's children. We don't discipline other people's children for at least two reasons. Number one, we, we don't have the right to do so, right? It would be very, it'd be horrible if I started coming around and trying to discipline other people's children, right? That, that's, that really is the parent's responsibility. But the second reason is we don't have enough energy, right? My wife and I are trying to ride herd on our wild donkeys while the, while the culture is saying, permit them to do whatever they want to do. It is more than a full-time job. But you better believe we discipline them because we love them. Because we want them to be better than their parents in every possible way. Remember who you are. Your disciplined sons. And lest you think that he's referring only here to the male members of the congregation. In the very next chapter, in Hebrews chapter 13, verse 4, he says, Let marriage be held in honor among all, and let the marriage bed be undefiled, for God will judge the sexually immoral and adulterous. We can hardly imagine that he's not there addressing both men and women, right? This is, we are sons and daughters of our heavenly Father. Things happen to us, not because God has abandoned us, or because he's forgotten to protect us, or because he wants to make an example of us to humiliate us publicly as a warning to others. No, it's because he loves us. Hard things happen to us because we are his sons. Now, we've got to remember who we are, but we also have to ask a question about what discipline is. He gets into this in verses 9 to 11. And you'll forgive me because I'm going to wax a little philosophical, but I promise uh, I'll try not to be boring. So discipline, what is discipline? We've got to think about what discipline is. Discipline is careful training with a view to proper functioning. Discipline is careful training with a view to proper functioning. The Apostle Paul uses the same word discipline in Ephesians chapter 6, verse 4, when he says, Fathers, do not provoke your children to anger, but bring them up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. Biblical discipline is a superior's response to weakness, ignorance, and immaturity in a subordinate. Biblical discipline wants to change immaturity into maturity, ignorance into knowledge and wisdom, weakness in to strength. And discipline, this is very important. Discipline is not punishment because discipline always looks to the good of the person being disciplined. Discipline always looks to the good of the person being disciplined. We see this in everyday fathers. Some of you had horrible fathers, and I'm sorry about that, but many fathers who are pretty lame. We nevertheless go, well, he did the best he could. He tried. Verse 10, they disciplined us for a short time as it seemed best to them. But that's not how your heavenly father is. Your heavenly father, he always disciplines us for our good that we may share his holiness. He always allows troubles 
to come to his people, to make us more like him. It's an argument from the lesser to the greater. If you can look at your dad, I can look at my dad and I can say, he did a good job. He did his best. Is he a sinner? Absolutely. But he did a good job. How much more can I look at my heavenly father and say, he always, Jesus does all things well. He has never left me. He's never forsaken me. He has only good things for me. Now, I said that discipline is not punishment. What is punishment? Punishment is justice's necessary response to wrongdoing. Punishment sees wrongdoing and it brings condemnation. And it condemns through authoritatively imposed hard treatment. Punishment is not discipline because punishment is concerned about the wrong that was done, condemning the wrong. Punishment need not be concerned at all with the well-being of the person being punished. Friends, God never punishes us. He never punishes us. He only disciplines us. How can we know that? How can we know that? Well, we know that because punishment condemns. Can God condemn me? No. Romans chapter 8 verse 1. There is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. All the condemnation for everything I have done, am doing, and will do was paid for on the cross. Justice completely satisfied. So I cannot look at any difficulty, any trouble in this life and say, well, I guess God's punishing me. No, no, no. Sweet sister, God would never punish you. You've been bought with the blood of Jesus. He disciplines you. He trains you. He helps you. We see this all the time, right? The runner trains for the marathon. The teenager works diligently on her algebra problems. Soldiers do hand-release push-ups. And children, they try to learn to read. Well, why? Why do these things happen? Is it because your coach hates you? Your math teacher wants to ruin your teenage years? Your drill sergeant wants you to wash out of the army? And your parents want you to feel dumb? Well, I sure hope not, right? Because good coaches, good teachers, good drill sergeants, good parents want to train, discipline, and nurture those under their care so they can function well in the roles that they have. And we receive discipline from our superiors because we want to succeed. We want careful, thoughtful, corrective input in our lives. Now, that means that we must, as Christians, reframe the hardships that we face in this life. It is curious to me in 2 Corinthians chapter 11, when the apostle Paul talks about all the hardships he faces as an apostle, he talks about the things that we would consider, like in the case of Polycarp being burned to death, things of really suffering for the Lord. And Paul really suffered for the Lord. He was whipped, he was beaten, he was stoned. 
But he also includes things like sleepless nights and, and hardship and, and toil and hunger. The apostle Paul had a sense. He broadened his sense of what God was doing in his circumstances. And we should do the same. We should, if you go into the gym, I don't go into the gym, but if you go into the gym and you, you know, lift weights and do all that sort of stuff, you suffer a little while. But the suffering, if you're a really good athlete, the suffering is pleasant because you have a confidence in the outcome. When troubles come our way, we should go, wow, God really wants me to flex my spiritual muscles. He really wants me to grow. He, he, really, he really wants me to become strong. And that's exactly what the author of Hebrews says in verses 12 and 13. He wants us to have deliberate strength. So it's a dedicated savior, disciplined sons, and deliberate strength in verses 12 to 13. Notice that there are two encouragements here. The first encouragement is to be strong. Lift your drooping hands and strengthen your weak, your, your weak knees. Be strong. Now, whenever I think be strong and, I always think be strong and courageous. Because the Lord says this repeatedly to Joshua in Joshua chapter 1. Be strong and courageous. Be strong and courageous. But here, if you notice the 12 and 13, it's more like be strong and be really careful. Be, be, really, be really cautious. Be really, watch out. Right? Make straight paths for your feet. Make straight paths for your feet. So also notice that make straight paths for your feet so that what is lame may not be put out of joint, but rather healed. Notice here that there is in the author of Hebrews a clear recognition that his audience is facing real hardship. We're not Presbyterian Buddhists, right? Bad things happen. Horrible, terrible calamities occur. Real suffering. But the author of Hebrews is saying, be really careful. Make straight paths. Why? Because you are injured. You are injured. And you don't want things to get worse for you spiritually. You want things to get better. If, if you don't lift your drooping hands and strengthen your weak knees, then you can succumb to the temptation to nurture weariness and faint-heartedness in the gardens of your souls. That is precisely what Satan wants for your life so that you can be a distracted and undisciplined servant of Jesus, that you can walk through life doubting the tender care of your heavenly father. Don't do it. Make straight paths for your, your feet. Now, it's interesting because the, um, I like that Paul talks about how the author of, of Hebrews, it may be a sermon. And that suits my purpose as well, because it could be that he's actually kind of warming to the theme of Proverbs 3. I mentioned that he quoted Proverbs 3 earlier. 
about not despising the Lord's discipline. But of course, the, the most famous verses in Proverbs 3 aren't those, but Proverbs 3, 5, and 6. Trust in the Lord with all your heart and do not lean on your own understanding. In all your ways, acknowledge him and he will what? He will make your paths straight. He will make your paths straight. We need straight paths to live. Roman legions blazed trails and built roads all over the conquered world. And they created a marvelous roadway, some of which we can still see today, 2,000 years later. It's a stupendous achievement. But they built the roads so that the Roman army could be better supplied and always capable of outmaneuvering their enemy. They understood what roads meant. About uh, just over 100 years ago, Dwight Eisenhower was part of an east to west uh, attempt after World War I to see if tanks and trucks could make their way across the country. And it was part of the impetus for the interstate highway system, which now has over 48,000 miles. Because in addition to the benefits for commerce and cultural exchange, there was the recognition that if we're ever attacked as a nation, we would need to be able to move troops, material supply quickly. What uh, Eisenhower uh, faced, I think it was in 1919, was he said that they rolled over a succession of dust, ruts, pits, and holes. Friends, your soul is traveling along, and you need to make sure that when the trials of life come, when war faces you, that spiritually your, your roads are in good shape. What does that mean? It means that we attend to the ordinary means of grace. It means that you need to prepare now for future troubles and hardships. You need to, to steady the state of your soul. And so that means, I think, two, two important things. Number one, it means that day to day, your Bible reading and prayer should be the focus of your activity. There are days when some of us may not read our Bibles. Those are days when you should not brush your teeth, right? That's how important it should be. Your spiritual hygiene is more important than your dental hygiene. And it also means that week to week, month to month, you should live Sunday to Sunday. You should fall, come to church and fellowship with believers and fall under the preaching of the word and receive the sacrament of the Lord's Supper. You need to make straight the paths of your spiritual life. Christianity is not for cowards, but it's not for fools either. You need to do a spiritual audit of your soul and say, God, give me wisdom to know how better to prepare my life now for hardships that I can face. And if you are in a moment of real anguish and sorrow, you must remember that God does not punish you. Christ was punished in your place. God disciplines you 
because he loves you. Well, in conclusion, let me just uh, <coughs> say that our God and the Heavenly Father has a marvelous uh, sense of humor. Because as I was preparing to uh, preach on this passage this week, uh, at the start of the week, my wife told me that one of our children broke our new couch. Then a coworker resigned from a voluntary post before a, a very important deadline. And all the work was, everybody looked to me to do the work. Then I uh, fell sick. And yesterday, our heater stopped working, which is inconvenient because it's winter. And uh, we, uh, I think it was like $252 later, the heater was resurrected. But this morning, it was cold in our house. Now, what I preach to you, I preach to myself all week. Jay, God is disciplining you as a son. Endure hardship as discipline. God is not punishing you. God loves you. Or in the words of Psalm 103, as a father shows compassion to his children, so the Lord shows compassion to those who fear him. For he knows our frame. He remembers that we are dust. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for the privilege we've had of looking together at your word. We pray that you'd write your word on our hearts. We pray that you would make straight paths for our feet, that we would trust in you in good times and in bad. Lord, Satan said in Job chapter one, does Job fear God for nothing? You have put a hedge around us. Our lines have fallen in pleasant places. You have bountifully and abundantly blessed us. May we always bless you, our God and King. Amen. Amen. Well, now let's honor the Lord with our tithes and our offerings.